What I would like to do this morning is I would like to present to you uh, this sermon from the Word of God that deals with that blessed ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Again, that blessed ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That ordinance which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us on the night of his betrayal and death. That ordinance which he gave to us, which symbols, symbolizes and pictures for us our very participation in his life and in his death. And what I want to do from this passage of scripture is primarily bring out Paul's flow of thought here. And it's somewhat interesting when we look at what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage of scripture. Because while he is mentioning the table of the Lord, and while he is mentioning this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, in a very interesting way, that's not his primary focus. His primary focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is not so much to teach on the Lord's Supper, but rather to use that which is understood concerning the Lord's Supper and make a point of application to dissuade and to warn the Corinthians concerning any potential involvement in idolatry. The real teaching that the Apostle Paul gives on the Lord's Supper is found in the next chapter, in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. But here in chapter 10, he does something that I believe is very helpful for us to understand the nature of the Lord's Supper. The nature of the Lord's Supper. What is the nature of this ordinance? What happens when you and I join together here very shortly to participate in the Lord's Supper? When we gather together in the name of Christ, when we pray over those elements which symbolize his body and blood, when we partake of that one bread as one body in Christ, what is happening there? Are we involved just in a great act of memory? Are we involved in some kind of an act of unity among ourselves? Is there something more that goes on? And I am convinced from this passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, by way of Paul's explanation of what happens in the very idle feast that he is warning the Corinthians against, what we learn is that there is something deeper than just our gathering together in a common name, we might say. But there is a real spiritual union and fellowship with Jesus Christ in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And not only is there a real spiritual fellowship and union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper, that union and that communion extends one to another as well. And so what we will learn from this passage of Scripture, and again, it's interesting because it's not by way of direct teaching from the Apostle Paul. He's using this truth to illustrate something else. We'll explain all that. But in this passage of Scripture, what he is teaching us is this, that in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, Believers enjoy true communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ and with one another as well. True communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the reason why I bring these things out is because I am convinced by the teaching of Scripture, I am convinced by way of the emphasis that we see in the Word of God on uh, the, the, the Lord's Supper, that you and I, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, should do so with certain points that we are very aware of, very cognizant of. And that is that when we do gather together for the Lord's Supper, there is a very special and unique way when Jesus Christ is present among his people. This means that our time of worship is not just, as I said before, a gathering at a certain hour in the day. This means that in a sense, Christ himself is communing with us. 
Now, this is something of a, a very interesting truth to develop because we do know that in a very real way, the Lord Jesus Christ is with us no matter where we go. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, he told his disciples. And there's a sense in which, by way of the exalted majesty of Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, in his rule over all, we know that he is present with us by way of his Spirit. But what I want to bring out here this morning is essentially this, that in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, that which we see and enjoy in a very real way, moment by moment, is in a sense intense, intensified in our sharing in the Lord's Supper. So if I can say this to you this morning, you and I are about to enjoy in a very special way. Even, I want to be careful here, even as, even as intimate as hearing the word of God preached, and there is a presence of Jesus Christ when the word of God is preached as it ought to be. And again, when I say that, I, I make no reference to the individual preacher. But what I mean by this is that when the word of God is preached, Christ speaks to his church. There is something there is something amazing about that. But in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, Christ is present among his people in the very way that he ordained that he be remembered. In preparation for the sermon, I kept thinking to myself by way of an illustration, what would it be if we knew that there was somebody who cared very deeply for us? And they were about to undergo some some great endeavor on our behalf before they left to undertake that endeavor they turned back to us one last time and they said remember this well there's a sense in which that's exactly what our lord jesus christ did on the night in which he was betrayed when he took the bread and he said do this in memory of me he is calling for us to remember him in in this particular way and so what we're going to see from the teaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that when we enter into the ordinance of the Lord's Supper by way of our spiritual communication and communion with Christ, he is particularly present in this ordinance. And so that's what I hope to develop for you here this day. And to do that, what I have to do is I have to, be, I, I have to uh, bring, uh, bring us uh, kind of into the text, if I can put it that way. And in this text, what I want you to see uh, first and foremost is that throughout this uh, section of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the whole issue of idolatry. Now, one of the things that we always have to be wary of and always have to be concerned about uh, whenever we hear the word idolatry is that we don't like kind of in our mind think, okay, okay idolatry, okay, that's one of those sins back there. You know, it's, it's very interesting when we read from Romans chapter 1. We read what I've referred to as some sins that are very up to date. A matter of fact, if you look at Romans chapter 1, I'm convinced that much of what we see in the present world by way of these sins that kind of make us say, well, where did that ever come from? This is the kind of progression of sin. But when we hear of idolatry, oftentimes I think we think, well, okay, idolatry, that's what they did back then. But you have to understand that the word of God is very, very clear that idolatry is still a present issue in the world today. And it's not without reason that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Again, he doesn't just say, okay, look, make sure you've kind of got this all figured out. Make sure that you're very cautious about this. You can do it, but be very... He doesn't say that. He says, flee from idolatry. So you need to see and understand 
that idolatry is still a very real issue today. Idolatry, by by way of the Apostle Paul's teaching in another place, is one of the works of the flesh. And we all know that there is a sense in which the works of the flesh are always with humanity, no matter what age we may be in. And so again, idolatry is a work of the flesh. I think the Apostle Paul makes it very clear for us that the way idolatry particularly manifests itself today is in the form of covetousness. This desire for more and more. This coveting after the things of this world. And this has led us to, to conclude, and you've probably heard this before, that idolatry is that any, is anything which takes the place of God in the heart. But I want to add a little bit of detail to that if I can. Idolatry is that thing which persuades and which woos the heart away from God. It's not just that which may stand in the place of God that we have no personal attachment to. It's not just idolatry that we must be careful of. It's my idols that I must be careful of. Just like when we deal with sin. It's not just sin in general. It's my sin that I must be concerned with. It's your sin that you must be concerned with. And so again, what I want you to see and understand is that the sin of idolatry is still a very real issue in the, in the world today and even for the church of Jesus Christ itself. That's why the Apostle John, when he closes out, when he closes out uh, his, his first epistle in 1 John chapter 5, closes out by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so again, we're not going to, again, go into any kind of a, a full-blown uh, uh, exposition on idolatry, but you have to understand that this section of scripture that Paul is dealing with is dealing with idolatry. Again, just to, just to kind of uh, give you some, some evidence of that, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we all have knowledge that, uh, excuse me, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but uh, charity edifies. And if any man thinks he knows anything, he he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if a man love God, the same is known of him. Concern, verse 4, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Now what's very interesting about this, as Paul is coming into this whole discussion on idolatry, we may be familiar with his reasoning here at this point. And you've probably heard these things. The whole issue surrounds, uh, surrounds meat offered to idols. I think we're familiar with this. This is well enough known. And you're, again, familiar with the fact that uh, back in Paul's day that uh, there were idol, you know, the, the, the temples to idols were pretty prevalent. And whatever was offered to the idol at the temple would then be taken behind the temple area and would be sold for public use. And the whole question came up by way of scruples of individual conscience. And it would be this. You know, I want to go over Sister So and So's house, but she keeps buying that meat that was that was sold at the uh, at the temple, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And Paul is basically saying this: Look, we know that an idol is nothing, and that the meats that are offered to idols, they're still meat. And he basically counsels this way: If your conscience does not offend you, if you are not offended by that idea, and if your brother or sister is not offended by the idea that, that the meat had been offered to idols, then you're free to participate in it. And we kind of stop at that point there. But what was happening, what was happening in Corinth is much like happens in our way of thinking. It was this. Well, if the meat that was offered to idols is no big deal, and since idols are no big deal, it must not be any big deal if I attend an idol ceremony with my cousin or my brother or my neighbor. My neighbor invited me to this ceremony. It happens to be an idolatrous feast. And an idol is nothing. I know that. And the meat that's offered there, it's still meat. 
so I can go to the idol, so I can go to the, um, uh, to, 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 to the ceremony. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. And the reason why he's saying that's not true, and this is where in the beginning of chapter 10, as he picks this back up, chapter 9, he gives a defense of his apostleship. But in chapter 10, he picks this back up and he uses a very interesting parallel. And the parallel that he uses is the history of Israel in the wilderness. And he says essentially this, if you look at Israel in the, if you look at Israel in the wilderness, they fell into the sin of idolatry. And the warning, he says, is still pertinent for us today. And that's why it gets into this whole explanation of what idolatry is actually all about. An idol was nothing, but in a very strange way. I need to be cautious here, but in a very strange way, there is an evil spiritual reality that attaches itself to this whole thing that we call idolatry. The idol is nothing. But that idol, and the best word that I can think of this to illustrate this, that idol becomes something of a portal into a realm of wickedness. Now, again, we have to be careful here. I don't want to see a, you know, we don't see a devil under every rock, so to speak, a demon under every rock. But neither can we in our scientific age think, well, that's nothing. That these things mean, you know, that, 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 that uh, idolatry, that, that's all superstition, don't have to have anything to worry about it. Listen, the idol is nothing. It means nothing. It is a non-entity. But there is a spiritual world that man doesn't see. And that idol becomes a means by which those spiritual forces are brought into contact with, with, with individual persons or individual persons make contact in that way. And so, again, we have to be very, very careful. Now, again, we might think, well, this, this is like, you know, this is 2017. We don't have to worry about these things. I almost hate to bring this up. I think Friday was the first day that I saw this headline. Uh, there were two illegal immigrants from El Salvador who had abducted, I think, three young girls. And during the days that they were holding them against their will, one of the girls had done something to this shrine that one of them had. And supposedly, they, she had made an offering to this shrine uh, by way of a cigarette or something. I don't know exactly what it was. It's in the news all over the place. You're, you're probably familiar with the story that I'm, I'm trying to convey. But apparently, one of, the, one of the young men came back and said that the beast doesn't want a cigarette. He wants a soul. And they murdered that girl. Now, this is, this, is, this is Friday. This isn't 2,000 years ago. And what I'm saying is this. That girl could have taken that statue, ground it up in the powder, put it in water, and made that guy drink it. It wouldn't have meant nothing. But that young man, that murderer, for him, it was a doorway. It was a portal to those demonic forces. So what's being said here? What's being said here is this, that in those idol feasts, there is a real spiritual communication that's entered into. There, not communication, there's a real spiritual communion that's entered into. Now, do you see where Paul's going with this? And when he is warning against participation in idol feasts, he is doing it on the basis of what they know. And the basis of what they know is this. When you sit at the Lord's table, you enter into spiritual communion with him. Theologically, for us, what that means is essentially this. 
Sometimes when we try to understand the Lord's Supper to a greater degree, we ask ourselves the question, okay, what view of the Lord's Supper do we hold? Do we hold that that there is a a real transformation of the elements into the body and blood of Christ? And we say, of course not. The the bread is still the bread. The wine is still the, the, the wine is still the wine. Do we say is there is there something is there something less? Is it only a commemoration of what the Lord Jesus Christ did? Let me say this: I believe that the Lord's the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is essentially or is primarily a commemoration, but it's more than that. In the Lord's Supper, there is real communion with Jesus Christ. If there was, and again, that's the point that Paul's making. And there's a sense in which he he is just taking it as baseline Christian Christian knowledge. You know this. That's why he says, did you see what he said here in verse 14? Notice again in verse 14. Um, I'm sorry, verse, um, uh, starting back um, here in, uh, from verse 10. um, Look at what he says in verse verse fifteen. I'm sorry. I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless. Again, he is working off of common knowledge. He is working off of knowledge that is generally understood. And what he's what he is generally assuming here, understanding or knowing that they know, is that when we enter into the Lord's Supper, a real spiritual communion is entered into with Jesus Christ. Now, again, kind of a strange way to get there, isn't it? Kind of a strain of, we're kind of like reasoning backwards, so to speak. But Paul was giving this warning because he doesn't want the Corinthian believers to fall into this very disastrous communion with demons. It's as simple as that. It doesn't sound right in our ears today, does it? But that's how, that's how unaccustomed we are to the reality of what the Word of God teaches. And so what we're seeing here is this real spiritual dynamic that exists uh, between uh, the, the forces of evil and where people are potentially today. Satanic influence is still an issue in our day. But thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank God that there is a spiritual union and communion with the person of Jesus Christ that the church of Christ enters into every time we commemorate the Lord by way of the Lord's Supper. This ordinance is a blessed ordinance. This ordinance is an ordinance whereby you and I should leave this place thinking that we have just entered into a very unique union and communion with Jesus Christ. Yes, we have an experience and enjoy it at all times. Yes, we have this union and communion with each other at all times. But in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there is something of an emphasis given to this. There is a particular way in which Christ is being commemorated that he is chosen by which to be remembered. And so again, what I want to do now is I want to just continue to open this passage up to you and I want to show you essentially three things. The first thing I want you to understand by way of the what I would call our primary doctrine or our primary proposition, and I've already mentioned it, but I want to repeat it for you because I do think it's important that this thought stay with you. And it's essentially this, that in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, believers enter into true communion with Jesus Christ and with one another. That there is a twofold communion that we enjoy. One is vertical with the Lord Jesus Christ and one is horizontal, one with another. And so what we will see is this, is that in this participation, Jesus Christ, as I said before, is uniquely present. In this participation, you and I are identifying with one another as fellow believers in in the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is particularly unique. So this great truth that we see here in this passage of Scripture. Now, as we go on, 
The, the other thing that I want you to see here is this, and again, as we as we begin to develop this, this this truth will be developed under four point. Excuse me, under three points, and the three points are essentially this. When we look at this passage of scripture, one of the things that we see, along with other passages of scripture, is that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic representation of what He accomplished for us on the cross. That's one of the things that we kind of always have to keep in our mind, keep in our mind, and one of the things that we always have to kind of uh, guard, if I can put it that way, that we don't fall into the error of thinking that just because the elements are prayed over and they do need to be prayed over, this is one of the things that we see at the Last Supper, the Lord specifically prayed over the elements. Uh, Paul says as well that we are to pray over the elements, and so again, but we don't see in that a change or a transmutation or or anything of uh, of what's known as transubstantiation. They remain the elements, but those elements are symbolical. And by way of symbol, we don't mean empty symbol. We don't mean a meaningless symbol. For those of us who are married, we carry a symbol with us all the time. And I guarantee you that that symbol is not meaningless. That symbol, maybe before you purchased it, may have had less meaning, but at a specific time, on a specific day, that symbol was given as evidence of something. And you know what symbol I'm speaking of. The symbol of our rings that we have on our fingers. This symbol, which is just, again, people would say it's just a ring. But it's not just a ring for us, is it? That ring is a sign of love. That ring is a symbol of the evidence of the the ones who have pledged their love for us. And so there's a sense in which while we say that the Lord's Supper has this symbolic reference to it, it's not empty symbol. It's not merely symbolic. It's more than that. But the symbol is meaningful for other reasons. Because if you look at the passage of Scripture again, notice what we see here in, in verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion with the blood of Christ? The first thing I want you to see by way of the symbolic symbolism of the Lord's Supper is that this symbol brings us into an awareness, a deepened awareness of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you understand, many of you know, and some of you this may, be, uh, this may be somewhat new to, but whenever we see a reference to the blood of Jesus Christ, always within that idea is always bringing us to the specifics of his death, his sacrificial death, his redeeming death. And so our participation in the blood of Jesus Christ is not so much our bleeding with him, of course not, we know that. It isn't just so much the looking upon his physical blood, as significant as that is. This participation in the blood of Jesus Christ is the participation in the benefits of Jesus of the death of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not merely an historical event. It was a saving act. Have you ever stopped to think the difference of views that must have happened on that day in, on, in, in, outside of Jerusalem on Calvary? The difference of how people viewed that. I... I think it was last year or the year before last, I preached a sermon and, and we looked at the different, the different perspectives on Calvary. There, were the, there was the religious perspective, we might say. These, the, these wicked men saying, finally we got them. Finally we got our way. There was, the, there, was the by, there was the bystander who was walking by and thinking, well, I wonder what he did. There was the view of the Roman soldiers and this is going to maybe almost shock your ears. From the view of the Roman soldiers, except for the centurion, and we'll get to him in a minute, from the view of the Roman centurions, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I almost hate to put it this way, from a pope, but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the public entertainment for the day. They mocked him. 
They spit upon him. They bow down before him in mockery. Entertainment. They entertained themselves at the death of Christ. But for the centurion, what was it? Surely this man is the son of God. For the disciples, what was it? Well, they didn't fully understand. But for you and me, what was it? It was the redemptive act that secured our soul's salvation. It was that redemptive act that united us to the saving purposes of God. It was that act whereby you and I will commemorate in a few minutes and we will participate in it and we will share in it and we will think afresh of what it means that when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, when he was there in the garden, he looked forward to the cross and he said, Father, thy will be done. In a sense, he looked back on his disciples and said, do not forget this. Do this in memory of me. So you see the, the elevation of the communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I bring these things out purposely because I, I, I want in, in the thinking of our minds to be so kind of possessed with this reality that there is a special union and communion that goes on in this ordinance. That when this ordinance takes place on the Lord's Day, can I say it this way? When this ordinance takes place on the Lord's Day, it's not that which keeps you from getting home 10 minutes later than usual. It's a feast of the soul. It's a communion with Jesus Christ. It's a participation in all the benefits that his blood represents. Paul goes on in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the 16th verse. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not communion of the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ. And here we are kind of touching upon those, the, those truths and those ideas, how that we live by the very life of Jesus Christ, that his life was a life whereby we eat the bread of life. And there's a sense when we look at the blood of Jesus Christ signifying for us his death, the bread of Jesus Christ signifying for us his life, there's a sense in which we see the outlines of what theologians sometimes refer to as the active and the passive obedience of Christ. I don't know if these terms are familiar to you, but, but when, the, when the obedience of Jesus Christ is looked at by way of his sacrificial death, a lot of times it's very helpful to look at it in a twofold way. On the one hand, Jesus Christ passively underwent obedience to the Father and passively received upon his person all the penalty of my sin and your sin. He was as a lamb led to the slaughter. But there's another way in which we can look at the obedience of Jesus Christ, and that's oftentimes referred to as his active obedience. And in his active obedience, what does he do? All that the law requires of you, he fulfills in your place. And so Jesus Christ is a substitute for sinners. It's not only a substitute for them in his death, he's a substitute for them in his life. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Have you ever done that? And wherever you may have failed in that, aren't you glad that you can rest in the substitute who has loved God with all of his heart, mind, and soul? Do you understand what I'm saying? And it doesn't lead us to diminish everything that it ought to be by way of our love for God. That the soul ought to be wholly consumed in its love for God. But even in the whole consuming of this soul's love for God, like we mentioned last week, blemishes, faults, failings, but in that love that Jesus Christ had for the Father, there's a sense in which our union with him means that that love for the Father that the Lord Jesus Christ had is a love that even extends to us and a love that we participate in. 
the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. And so again, as I said before, the first point that we see here in under the head of this doctrine that believers enjoy a real spiritual communion with the Lord Jesus Christ in the ordinance of the Lord's uh, Supper, the first thing we understand that there is a symbolic uh, emphasis here in this uh, in this ordinance. Now, the symbolism again, I think I've explained that hopefully sufficiently. Uh, again, I don't want you to think it's an empty symbol. I don't I don't want, I don't want you to think it's mere symbolism, but the symbol is there. Under the elements of bread and wine, the Lord Jesus Christ shows himself to us. But the other thing I want you to see is this, is that not only is uh, the the Lord's uh, table uh, that which is symbolic, it's also that which is truly spiritual by by way of its communion. It's truly spiritual. There is a true spiritual communication that takes place. There is a true fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is unique to the Lord's table. Now, why do I say this? Because I, I, don't, I don't know that we always enter in to our, to, to our observance of the Lord's table this way. I mean, sometimes I think, uh, uh, if you're anything like me, we, we scan our minds and we, we want this to be significant. We know this is significant, but, but sometimes we can't connect all the dots together. What I'm saying to you is this. By way of the warning, and I, and I know you were probably set back a little bit on your heels when I was telling you all this stuff about uh, you know, uh, uh, the idol being a, a point of connection between the demonic world and, 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 and the world that people live in today. And you're thinking, oh, where's, the, where this whole, where's this whole thing going? And again, I, it's, it's shocking to me as well. But you understand the point that's being made. There is real spiritual activity and communion that's going on. I think that much more takes place in worship services than we even understand. So if that's the case, how much more when we gather in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and break the bread and partake of the cup, how much deeper is that communion when the Lord of glory himself has promised to be with, be with us in this ordinance? My Christian friends, if I can say this, you and I are about to enter into a feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised to be here in a very unique and special way. And so what we're seeing here, again, as I said before, is this communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we speak of our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, we know and we understand that there are many ways in which the the Bible speaks to us about our communion with Christ. I think, uh, again, I hope I'll I'll kind of, um, I'll I'll, I'll take a, a, you know, a, uh, a little chance here. I don't think it's much of a chance. I think we all know the, the blessing of communion with Jesus Christ in prayer. That when the Lord Jesus Christ deals with our soul, when the Spirit of God comes upon us in a way that we don't fully understand, but we fully, but we certainly, we, 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 we certainly sense. When, we, when we're there with the Word of God and the Word of God is, is open to us and, and, and just the right word from heaven finds itself in front of our eyes. The spiritual communion, the spiritual blessedness, and that's true. I think of the passage of Scripture again in, in 1 John uh, uh, chapter 1. You know, our, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And when the, excuse me, when the Apostle John writes, he writes with that desire that all join into that fellowship. And this is true, we have that fellowship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul says that, that, that God, by way of the gospel, has called us into the fellowship of His Son. So there are those very real elements of fellowship that we have at all times. Times of fellowship or the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not even fully aware of, but it's there. But in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, this is what we come back to. 
in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. As I said before, and I don't want you to, I don't, I don't want you to, to diminish this because I, ne- I need to be careful now of going too far in another way. I don't want you to so elevate this ordinance that you put this ordinance in place of things that God has ordained in one sense that is even for the benefit of your soul as well. Your attendance upon the preaching of the word of God is vital for your spiritual well-being. It is. You're hearing the word of God opened up. Having the spirit of God applied to your soul is absolutely vital. And there is, as I said before, a sense in which when the word of God is, is being preached in, in, the, in, in, the, in the power of the spirit of God and, and it's being opened up and rightfully applied, rightfully interpreted, rightfully applied, there's a sense in which Jesus Christ as prophet is speaking to his church has nothing to do in one sense with the man who is proclaiming. It has everything to do with the promise of Jesus Christ to be present in the act of preaching. Amen. And he's active in the observation of the Lord's Supper. He's with us. And so this spirit, this, 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 this observation of the Lord's Supper, not only is it symbolic, it is truly spiritual and it is a true communion of our souls uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So many uh, other things that we can say here by way of uh, this spiritual communion uh, that we have uh, with our Savior. But the third thing I, I want to just you know move on here from, from, from that second point, and that is the primary point. Again, let, let, let me say this, that this really is the primary point, that you and I understand that, that our communion is with Jesus Christ in the observation of the Lord's, uh, of, of the Lord's uh, uh, Supper. It's not just something that we do uh, thoughtlessly or meaninglessly, and you may not be uh, guilty of that. Uh, but I do want you to understand that there is an elevation here. Uh, and that elevation is that sense of the spiritual communion that Jesus Christ has with his church. But the third thing I want you to note, not only is the Lord's Supper, you know, having that, that element of a symbolic act. Uh, not only is the Lord's Supper that whereby we have true communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I want you to understand is this, is that in the Lord's Supper, we truly enter into a unique form of communion with one another as well. We are all participants in that one bread. You and I are truly brought into fellowship and union in a way that goes just beyond common interest, in a way that goes beyond our common uh, thing, you know, things that we may share in, in common. Or even, you know, you may be one of those people who, who don't so much like people who are a whole lot like you, but like people who are a, lot, who are a whole lot different than you. And it's on the basis of those differences you try to find, again, this, this kind of shared uh, fellowship. But in the Lord's Supper, our basis of communion has in one sense nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And, it is, I, and what I want you to understand is this, is that when we look out and look towards one another, not merely at one another, but look towards one another and, and look with one another with, with all the love and affection that Christians should have for one another. When we do that, we have to understand that the unity we have is not a unity that is easily won or not a unity that was easily bought, excuse me, not, not, not a uni- unity that was easily come about. It was a unity that came about at a great price. And that price was the precious blood of the Lamb who gave himself for us. You know, it is by the death of Jesus Christ and by his sacrifice on the cross that we have all been made partakers. That's why Paul says we all eat of one body and we all eat of one bread. And so what I want you to see then in this passage of Scripture is that there is a real spiritual union that you and I enter into when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by the grace of God, hopefully our thoughts have been elevated here. By the grace of God, hopefully our thoughts have been rightly ordered so that when we come to the table of the Lord, we do so maybe in a very new way.
maybe in a way that causes us to realize, maybe for the first time, in this ordinance, I will meet with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this ordinance, my soul will commune with him. In this ordinance, I will have true fellowship with the people of God. May this be a blessing to your soul. May it be a benefit to this church. And may it be that which is for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, how we do thank you for uh, this, uh, this section of your word, which brings to us this very, very important uh, truth that there is a real spiritual fellowship that we have with you and with your Son, uh, and especially so, Father, in this ordinance of the Lord's table. We ask now, Father, that you would be with us uh, in this uh, very act, and that as we participate, that we would be mindful of this spiritual communion, and that we would give you, Father, all the glory that you are worthy of through it. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.